Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and my guest today is one of the most badass people I've spoken to. Sarah McNair Landry is an adventurer, filmmaker, and polar guide. She grew up on Baffin Island and learned to ski and drive sled dogs from her parents who were both Arctic guides themselves. She's kite buggied the Gobi Desert, traveled Greenland by kayak, she's crossed the Arctic Ocean from Russia to Ellesmere Island. At 19, she became the youngest person to reach both the North and South Poles, and she's been named one of the top 10 women in adventure by National Geographic Adventure Magazine. I think you get the picture. Sarah McNair Landry is, suffice it to say, a very interesting person. Here's her story. Sarah, it's hard to know where to begin in talking about your life and the things that you do, but I thought it would be fun to start early on. Like when you were a kid and you learned how to dog sled, tell me a little bit about that setup that you had, because it was a bit unique. Um, well, my parents were always into the outdoors and were introduced to dog sledding um, when they were working at Outward Bound. And um, so pretty much as young as I can remember, we always had dogs and we'd always go out dog sledding. When I was, uh, just before I turned four, they came up to Baffin Island and did a four month expedition circumnavigating the island and really fell in love with the people and the place and relocated my brother and myself to Baffin. So we pretty much had the Arctic Ocean and a team of dogs in our backyard and to, to clarify, the Arctic Ocean here is frozen most of the year. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, do you have memories of prior to moving out to Baffin Island? Like, where was home before that? My parents were in uh, Thunder Bay, Ontario, mm -hmm. working for Outbound before they came up to Baffin Island. And I have a couple memories, but not much. Um, Baffin's really home. Yeah. So you mentioned your parents. Tell me just a bit about them. Like if if there's a if ordinary exists as far as parents go, I, I think your parents kind of top that any day as far as uh, being interesting <laughs> folks. Uh, what what are they like? Uh, your mom and your dad. They have always loved the outdoors and being outside and heading um, out on adventures and uh, definitely dragged my brother and I out on uh, camping trips when we were young, uh, non-optional camping trips. <laughs> um, and then, you know, they when they relocated to Baffin, they started their own guiding company. And really, you know, when they started, it was a lot of day trips. And they just grew and grew over the years into week-long trips, two-week trips, three-week trips, till eventually they got into the polar expeditions and they really pioneered guiding in the polar regions. Um, my mom was the first ever to guide a, an expedition to the North Pole. Um, they were some of the first to guide expeditions in Antarctica. Mm. So they were kind of on the forefront of the whole polar expedition world. Were you on board for those mandatory camping trips or did it take convincing at the time? Uh, <laughs> I think a little bit of both. <laughs> you know how it is to be a kid sometimes. It's cold outside and maybe you just want to hang out with your friends. Mm -hmm. um, but there's definitely some, you know, a lot of times we could, we were allowed to invite friends to come with us. So, and we'd drive our own dog team and I have some 
good memories of spring, spring, winter camping trips up here. Your mom had a rule, I've read. No TV when you were kids. How did that go over with you? <laughs> some some rules are just, you know, not optional. Um, but yeah, no TV. So we spent a lot of time outside. And we spent a lot of time helping with the business, too. Um, with the dog team, with the puppies. And as we got older, assistant guiding. But now that I look back at it, I'm glad I grew up with a TV and I've actually never had a TV in any house I've lived in. Never. Um, you know, at the time, at the time it can be hard. All your friends are watching certain TV shows and you have no idea what they're talking about. And, <laughs> um... <laughs> no, I think you're better for it in the end. Uh, so Baffin Island for all intents and purposes is home. I mean, to much of Canada, that feels like a very, remote place, a very distant place that not many people get to see. Tell me a bit about home. It's stunning. I mean, it's the, uh, I live on the southern end of Baffin Island um, in the capital called Iqaluit. So it's, uh, it's the biggest town and there's no roads that connect any of the communities. Um, it's the fifth largest island in the world and it's about 20,000 people that live on it divided into seven communities so it's uh it's remote and cold um we just ended our dog sled season about a week ago and we probably have another couple days of kite skiing season before summer really sets in up here um but yeah it's it's stunning i live in it's kind of foothills Mm -hmm. um as you go east the whole east coast of baffin island has these just these epic cliffs that rise out of the ocean i'm sure you've seen pictures of them um it's a climber's paradise what are the seasons like um so winter sets in uh it starts snowing in september and then really we can start dog sudden in october november and then it's pretty much winter until um until now until june um this most of the snows melted <laughs> off the land but our sea ice freezes mm -hmm. so we can still travel on the sea ice and it's just starting to break up and crack and then uh we have a bit of a down season that we're coming into where the ice is breaking up so you can't travel by snow machine or dog sled and you can't travel by boat and then Usually by early July, you can start, the, the ocean's open and mm. you can travel by boat. Mm. What are the bugs like on Baffin Island in summertime? You know, it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely mosquitoes, especially as you head inland. It can, it can get thick, but um, we're right on the ocean. Mm -hmm. The whole town's right on the ocean, so you have a an ocean breeze most days that keeps the bugs away. Let's talk a little bit about what you've come to do today. You know, today you're known for expeditions, whether that's kayaking Greenland or crossing the Arctic Ocean or kite bugging the Gobi Desert. I mean, how did that start for you? I mean, you talked about the early camping trips, but what was your first, if you will, larger expedition? It was a pretty natural progression for me, as I said 
as a kid, we did a lot of camping trips. And as my brother and I got older, we started doing longer trips, whether it's a couple days and then a week to two week trips. Um, my first real expedition, if you want to call it, was across the Greenland ice cap. And I was 16 or 17. And my parents pulled me out of school and um, we had dogs and kites and we did a, a family trip across across the ice cap. And I think that was the trip where I really fell in love with the whole idea of heading out on expeditions. Before it was just something we did. Hmm. Um, and that was really like, wow, this is amazing. Where where else can we go? What is it about uh, an expedition that calls to you? You know, why do this instead of anything else? I just love being outside. And an expedition is, it combines being outside every day with a crew of friends and getting to go explore these amazing places that are really remote and hardly anybody gets to go to. So this one, when you're 16 years old, you're off in Greenland with your family. You've got the kites and dogs along. So was that your, your kite skiing then? Yeah, we were kite skiing and uh, it was a bit of a combo of dog sled and kite skiing. We had most of the gear on the dog sled. So on the no wind days, we'd ski beside and on the wind days, we would kite and kind of help the dogs out by hauling some gear. I would call it a dog sled trip. However, we brought the kites along. But as an experiment, it was, it was really new, and not many people had done big expeditions with kites. So it was a bit of a trial to see how they worked on expedition. Mm. Okay, what is the secret or trick to kite skiing? Like, how do you, how do you learn to kite ski? Well, first thing, you need winds and a big area with no trees, um, which means Baffin Island is an amazing <laughs> place to kite ski because we have winds consistently all the time and we have no trees and we can pretty much go anywhere with our kites in the winter time. Trees are bad because you don't want to get blown into them. You get blown into them. They mess up the winds. So it's, yeah, and you just have less less area to play around in yeah basically okay so so lots of winds no trees yeah what else that's the key i mean you can kite in treat areas but i would suggest that and um i use my at ski gear and then a kite in the harness and um yeah it's a little bit of a learning curve but if if you're a skier it's it's pretty sweet it's it, you can travel my attraction to it was not not only is it an amazing sport, I, I love to kite all the time, not on exhibition, but it is such an amazing way to access places so much faster. Um, and you can cover so much more distance than you can in a traditional ski hauling type expedition. Hmm. What about dog sledding? So you're mostly dog sledding on that trip. Like what makes for a good dog sledding team? How do you know what dog belongs where? Um, it takes a lot of turning and a lot of time. Dog sledding is more, I would say it's more of a lifestyle sport. And that's why you see less and less dog sled expeditions. Because it's, it's not like skis or kite. When you're done your expedition, you can just hang them up or put them in the closet and forget about them. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've had a team forever. And right now I've 
uh, 13 dogs and hopefully some puppies on the way this summer. And every single one of them I've raised, I've trained them since they were puppies. And, you know, you get to know their characters, who likes who, who doesn't like who. Hmm. Um, There's a lot that goes into where the dogs run on a team. Um, Mostly it comes down to trying to figure out where they want to run and where they're happy to run and Hmm. who they who they get along with. Are there different like positions in a dog sledding setup? Like are there names for each position that a dog would be in? The main ones are you have your lead dogs and then there's kind of the main pack and then the dogs in the back are your wheel dogs. They're your big strong dogs. Um, The way we run our dogs in Baffin is fan hitch. So from the side, they each are on their own line which is different than most people would probably see um, in the way they run dogs in Alaska and in the big races like the Iditarod where it's a tandem, so it's two by two. Right. So what are the advantages of being a fan setup? So the tandem makes sense because, one, they have trees in Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) And if you have each of your dogs on its own line, you have one that goes on the right side of the tree and one that goes on the left side of the tree, and it would be a disaster. (laughs) Um, And in in really deep snow, it can be an advantage to have your dogs in one line and they can follow a pack trail. Um, The fan is a traditional way that Inuit and Greenlanders have always run their dogs, and the advantage is that just it gives more dogs freedom to choose their footing and choose their path. So that's the way I've always run my dogs, is, isn't a fan. Um, it also means they can interact with each other a lot more. Um, so you need to be a little bit more careful about where you place them to make sure that they're all happy running in those positions. Who is the alpha dog in your bunch of 13? So there's actually an alpha female and an alpha male in the pack. Mm-hmm. Um, and it changes. Sometimes it's not very obvious who it is, especially when the alpha retires and then a new one moves up. And that's a bit of a position right now. The the old alpha male retired. Guys are kind of moving up in the position and I'm not 100% sure who it is, but mm. um, my guess would be it's this uh, big black and white dog that I have and his name is uh, Stubby because he was born with half a tail. And uh, and the alpha female? The alpha female is uh, is probably his sister Goose. Okay. She definitely is the one who causes the most trouble on the team. <laughs> so, needless to say, a lot of personalities to figure out <laughs> on a dog sledding team, and and who goes where. Uh, I want to talk about a trip you took at twenty years old. So, this was the expedition you traveled eighteen hundred kilometers across the Arctic Ocean, skiing, walking, swimming, dog sledding, kiting. I mean, what was that like to do all of those things? Uh, to go from Russia's Arctic Cape to Ellesmere Island. Um. The Arctic Ocean is, is an amazing and a terrifying place because there's no landmass under it. It's It can be minus 40 and you can run into open water or have these big chunks of ice crack in half. And then the next day they'll just like pile together and create these massive pressure ridges uh, to get up and over, which is 
it's a hard place to describe. It's so different and dynamic and moving and changing. Um, on one side, it can be very beautiful. And on the other side, it can be very demoralizing. Mm. I think a, a good a good way to describe that, I remember one day we woke up. It was really stormy. About to travel, um, I went through the ice up to my waist twice that day. Um, another guy I was traveling with also, uh, I think he went up to his knees uh, through thin ice. And we put a good eight hours of travel in, got into our tents that night, checked our GPS, and the pack was drifting back further than we could dog sled and ski forward. And we were actually one nautical mile behind where we had camped the day before. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's, it's just so different. Like, it's so hard to plan and, and to just mentally, it can be a very tough environment to be in. What is, you swam as part of that across. What, what is swimming like in the Arctic Ocean? So on my first trip to the North Pole, we had uh, two dog teams, and we tried to swim as little as possible. If we were swimming, it was by accident. Um, when I went back uh, guiding in 2006, we were on skis, and then part of our strategy to cross open water was to swim across it. We had these big, they're basically big dry suits that are open at the top. Mm -hmm. and we can put them on over our boots and all our winter gear and then you jump in the water and swim across pulling your sled um, and then get up get out at the other side and keep skiing do those suits have a certain amount of buoyancy to them or are they like extra weight that's pulling you down too they do they you're pretty buoyant especially because you have your ski boots on and all your winter gear on under them and it's actually quite warm in the suits because the water is never colder than salt water is never colder than minus three. And it can be a lot of work. The The toughest conditions is not the open water, but it's when it, there's a thin layer of ice on top of the open water that's not quite strong enough to support your weight, hmm. um, but hard to break through as you're swimming. <laughs> so you have to swim and break up these chunks of ice at times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One thing that you've done for a number of years, uh, I've mentioned early on, I first heard of you after interviewing Eva Holland and reading a piece that she wrote. This thing that you do every year, you invite people to Baffin Island for these two weeks of polar training. What does that look like, polar training? It's um, it's my favorite course to teach. I love it. Um, we get people from basically around the world, it's, it's very international, who want to learn how to go on expeditions. Some come with personal goals. Um, some come because they want to be a client on a guided trip and need to gain experience. Um, so it's very diverse. And it's basically an exhibition boot camp. Hmm. <laughs> the first week we're in town, so it's half days doing more theory um, how to use a GPS, how to read maps, how to pack out, how to uh, write emergency plans. And then in the afternoons, we're out in the field skiing, hauling sleds, 
learning this, all the skills, doing crevasse rescue, and people sleep out every night in tents. And then the second week, we pack up and head out on a little mini expedition that includes uh, we do a swim in open water, mm-hmm. which is fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then a couple days in, I uh, I leave the group, and they make their way back to uh, town on their own. It's kind of like their final their final test. Mm. And keep in mind, this all takes place in end of February, early March. So, we we purposely do it during the cold the cold months to really give people a true taste of uh, of Baffin Island, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, my theory is if you're gonna train, you have to train properly, mm. and you need to train in the same conditions or similar conditions as what you're gonna travel in. And Baffin is such an amazing training ground our ocean freezes so we have very similar flat uh sastrugi type conditions as antarctica and we have really high tides which push up the ocean in these big pressure ridges very similar to the north pole and currents that keep some sections of the ocean open where we can swim and practice open water stuff so it's a pretty amazing training ground for antarctica greenland and north pole expeditions whether it's uh you know that survival course if you want to call it that of people making their way back to town or or any expedition that you're on you know i think with being outdoors and being on an expedition you can plan all you want but things don't always go according to plan uh, you know thinking about uh, the ice sheet that takes you back a, a whole mile behind where you progressed from how do you handle that uncertainty of uh of things going wrong um i think i'm overly optimistic at times Hmm. (laughs) combined with the stubbornness not to give up would be a a good way to describe (laughs) and at the same time the more expeditions i do it just builds that confidence and those skills you know, when you get yourself in a position that you've never been in before, it can be scary versus getting yourself into a position and you can think back and be like, oh, I was in a similar position and we were able to figure it out and get ourselves out of here. So, yeah, just the more time spent on expeditions and spent outside and spent training really helps me deal with those situations. What is uh, your best story of, of things going wrong? I got I got a couple, but um, I mean, there's a lot that comes to mind. I guess there's two big ones that come to mind. One, I was in the middle of an 85-day expedition with my brother. Uh, we were tight skiing through the Northwest Passage in the winter time, and we were just coming up to our halfway mark. It was pushing into the spring, so it was getting warmer, and we knew we were coming up to a section of not great ice. But when we got there and we looked out as about a hundred kilometer stretch, there was no way we could safely cross it. Um, it was just huge sections of open water with small little chunks of ice that we couldn't even pitch a tent on. Mm-hmm. And our only other option if we couldn't cross it was to do a 550 kilometer detour around this ocean section. And we decided to sleep on it. And that night, uh, we had a polar bear rip through our tent. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like this double. Not only did we have like this 550 kilometer detour 
that we had no maps for a huge part of. We also had this bear rip through a tent at uh, four in the morning, um, which definitely shook us up and changed the mood for the next <laughs> for the next week or two. <laughs> how do you uh, how do you handle a polar bear ripping through the tent in the middle of the night? We we had a bear fence set up, which he was able to get through without setting it off. So. It was a combination of he came down on my side, so a lot of kicking and screaming, mm -hmm. um, which made him back into our bear fence and set it off. And, and uh, that scared him slightly away and gave us enough time to get outside the tent. And then I ran for the gun and he charged my brother, um, who had no glasses on and a like three foot camp shovel mm -hmm. <laughs> and smacked him in the face with his camp shovel. <laughs> your your brother smacked the polar bear the whole the time yelling shot. at me you can guess yeah <laughs> it's funny now but at the time there was no laughter no <laughs> um anyway he and the bear kind of circled around to where i was and uh, luckily i was able to shoot just a couple feet above his head and and the sound of the bullet was enough to convince him to slowly wander away Wow. <laughs> so that's uh, that's all before this 550-kilometer decision. You end up, uh, I'm guessing you ended up deciding to go for the 550-kilometer detour after that. Or how do you how do you settle down after something like that? You know, at the t it was like 4 in the morning, so we were like, we sewed our tent back up and packed up our stuff, and we decided to hike back up on this hill one last time to kind of scout the ice. And we hiked back up on this hill and we pretty much made the decision. And I remember looking back down at our sleds and there was another, a different polar bear <laughs> <laughs> that was circling our sleds. And I think that was like the final straw of like, let's just get out of here. Mm -hmm. And um, we saw five more bears that day. And uh, yeah, it definitely changed to like, ooh, can we can we cross? Can we? Probably not. To like, let's just get out of this place as fast <laughs> as possible. <laughs> you weren't going to sleep on it a second night at that point. You were going to move. No. No. <laughs> no. Polar bears. Do we make a big enough deal? Or bears in general? You know, do we uh, over-exaggerate the danger of them or underestimate them? I have the most experience with polar bears, so I can't really speak about grizzlies and black bears. But I would say most polar bears are curious. But you spend enough time outside and you're going to meet that one that's hungry. Um, mm. And, yeah, I, it's a combo of I don't think we need to be freaked out about all bears. Um, they're beautiful. They're amazing animals. I mean, just a couple of weeks before that bear encounter, we had a really great bear encounter where we had put our kites down and we we're eating a break. And this little bear, um, he looked like a young bear, ran up to our kites and um, was just really curious. He pawed at our kites, he kind of checked them out, and then he wandered away and he was probably 100 meters away from us and yawned and took a nap in the snow. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so... You know, by by no means are all bears hungry and scary and want to attack us. Um, but it is good to respect that they are large carnivores. So you mentioned that was one, one example of things going wrong. What was the other story that comes to mind? 
I was in Greenland uh, with my partner, Eric Boomer, and a Ben, uh, and a good friend of mine, Ben Stixbury, and we were about seven days in on a kite ski across the ice cap uh, to access a remote river and then kayak the river. And um, unfortunately, the winds picked up, and I pulled my safety system on my kite, and it failed to engage and picked me up and landed me on my head. And I broke vertebrae in my back. So you're in Greenland, remote part of the country, broken vertebrae. What do you do? I mean, the first thing we did was it was it was the evening. So I took some painkillers. I rested, woke up the next morning, consulted with some friends that were doctors through our Iridium phone. And, you know, it's, it's tough. Like, without an x-ray, you can't really tell what's going on. Or we couldn't. Mm. <laughs> So we made the decision as a team to continue to travel, but do shorter days and see after five days, do a serious reevaluation. So the first two days, uh, Ben and Boomer pulled my sled and I was able to ski beside. Uh, the third day, there's a bit of wind. They were able to kite, pull in all the gear, and I was able to ski beside without a sled. And then um, by the fourth day, we got some pretty friendly winds and I was able to get a, a kite back up in the air and I felt good kiting. So we made the decision to keep going. I mean, how do you get yourself back out there after something like that? Whether it's falling and having broken a vertebrae or a kite skiing fall or whether it's a polar bear encounter that's a little bit too close for comfort. Like, how do you get yourself back moving again after something like that happens? The broken vertebrae, I didn't, we didn't know it was broken. We didn't know what was wrong. So I think it was just this hope that it would get better mm. as the expedition went on and it'd feel better. And, and I also felt so comfortable kite skiing that I could be very careful and could make sure that I didn't fall again. That was the only crash of the trip I had. Um, you know, it would have been different if it was a new sport and I was learning, but I felt confident that I could be careful and make sure not to fall again and try not to re-injure it and and continue traveling and continue assessing the situation. I would say the polar bear encounter, it was a blessing that we had to continue. I think if, if we would have stopped, it would have been really hard to go back out <laughs> and sleep in a tent in the polar bear area. <laughs> uh -huh. But it, it shook us up. I mean, that polar bear made it pretty clear that he wanted to eat us and that, that stays with you. And we had a lot of, um, and plus we had this bear fence system that was supposed to warn us and it had failed to warn us. Mm. Um, so we had very little trust left in our bear fence and, um, for probably a week or two, you know, we, we definitely didn't sleep well or a lot. Mm -hmm. And you tell, <laughs> you tell yourself mentally these things that make you feel better sometimes that don't make sense. But I remember we made this rule up that if we saw bear prints, we'd ski at least another hour before we camped, mm -hmm. which, let's be honest, <laughs> bears can travel so far. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just, and we knew this, you know, there's, there's no reason behind it, but it was just this mental, yeah, it was just mental that... If we saw bear tracks, we needed to at least move right. and be away from where a bear had been. 
what is your relationship with fear like? And because, you know, something like the bear encounter, I mean, that's got to be a frightening thing to have happen. Yeah, I mean, I get scared all the time. There's definitely no, a lot of people sometimes say like, oh, you must be so brave or not get scared. And let's be honest, we all get scared. For me, the more I know something, the more comfortable I become around it. And, um, for example, I just started to, uh, learn how to climb these last years Mm -hmm. and I have a slight fear of heights, (laughs) (laughs) but I can see that the more, you know, the more time I spend on a wall, especially like multi pitches, it's just the more comfortable I become, the more I trust the systems and the gear and, just being that high off the ground. So for me, it's the more I know something and the more I understand it, the less fearful I am, I guess, if that makes sense. What about when you're planning an expedition? What are you looking for? Like what tells you this is going to be the one, whatever it is that catches your interest in deciding to to go to a particular place or try something? (laughs) We kind of have just this, like a bank of ideas flowing around and it varies. Sometimes it's it's, it's sport dependent. Um, for example, the Greenland ice cap to river trip. That one was we want to kayak somewhere in the Arctic, and the easiest way to access these rivers is to ski across an ice cap, dragging your kayak. So all of a sudden, we needed an ice cap, and we needed rivers. And Greenland has amazing winds, and the second biggest ice cap in the world, and the west coast of Greenland is full of amazing rivers. So for that one, we kind of settled on Greenland and then it was days and days and days on Google Maps and satellite imagery, just searching for rivers, searching for places to come off the ice cap. Other times it's, you know, a pretty line on a map or Mm. it can be, you know, um, in 2015, Boomer and I recreated my parents' four-month expedition around Baffin Island, dog sledding. You know, the Northwest Passage is something I grew up hearing stories about people sailing in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And we thought it would be a cool goal to see if we could do it in the wintertime. So it, yeah, I would say it really varies. Other times when we went to Mongolia and crossed the desert, it was, it started as a, we want to do a kite buggy expedition. And we pulled out an atlas and we're like, let's find a desert and we kind of settled on Mongolia. So yeah, I would say it's driven by, by a whole bunch of different factors. Sometimes it can just be, you know, if, if COVID wasn't happening right now, I would be in Greenland. Mm -hmm. And uh, that expedition was just the fact that we wanted to push North into Northern Greenland because it's so remote and not many people get to go up there. And we really wanted to go check that area out. One of the things I wonder, you know, so much of your expeditions are dealing with these remote places and the nature of social media nowadays and and in documentaries nowadays, people see these places and want to go. Is there a part of you that wants to keep some of these places, you know, private to not share (laughs) the places that you're going to, to preserve them from others um, discovering them or quote unquote discovering them or worried about your favorite spots suddenly having tour buses pulling up? You know, when you live in the Arctic, you don't worry about that so much. <laughs> <laughs> Just the fact that there's no roads to get here. 
it's not, you know, the, yeah, it's, the Arctic is a tough place to travel. Logistically, it can be a nightmare. The access is really hard. It's, it's very different than, than, than the rest of North America in that way. So I, you know, I wouldn't say that's a big worry of mine. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's difficult for a tour bus to arrive when there's no roads leading there. I think, I think the place I notice it the most changing and becoming, I don't want to say busier isn't the right term, but, um, is Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, you see more and more expeditions going to Antarctica and doing the, what they call the standard South Pole expedition. And, you know, part of me looks at it and because I was down there before it was more popular when it was just like one or two teams, uh, not many people were going there. Part of me is like, oh, you know, that's too bad. It's, it's changing. And then the other part of me is like, you know what? Antarctica is huge. Mm-hmm. It's massive. And if everybody wants to do the same route, you know, have at it. There's a whole other continent to explore. It's kind of like the seven summits, you know. Everybody wants to climb the seven summits, and those seven summits are so crowded. But if you take a step back, you're like, there's thousands of other summits. Mm. that have nobody on them. You know, you've mentioned climbing already. What's left for you to do? What calls to you next? Oh, there's so many trips to do. Um, but um, I I mean, the kite skiing and dog sledding is always going to be some of my favorite expeditions. Lately, I've uh, really fell in love with the combo expeditions. My boyfriend, Eric Boomer, is a professional paddler. So that's where the idea came to combine my skills and his skills into an expedition and and to use an ice cap to access a really remote river in Greenland. So we have plans to do more similar expeditions, kind of that that glacier to whitewater kayaking Mm -hmm. style. Um, Climbing's become a passion in these last couple of years. I can't say I'm very good at it yet, Mm -hmm. but... um, I mean, Baffin Island is, is home to some of the most amazing walls. These walls like tower over Yosemite and nobody climbs them. Nobody's up here. So I'd love to do some cool climbing missions. Actually, this this summer, since we can't go to Greenland, we uh, have switched off our plans and are looking at doing a possible climb and kayak Baffin adventure up here. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time today. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Awesome. Thanks for chatting. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and review, and best of all, tell someone else about it. If you really love the show, if you want to support in some way, head to the shop section on the Story Untold website. You'll find t-shirts and stickers there. They're both great. I have both. The shirts are super comfortable, and it all helps to keep this show going. If you want to get in touch, a few ways you can. You can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Martin underscore Bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was A Story Untold. See you next time. <laughs>